Well, good morning. Uh, I have a question for you. Have you ever known someone who was passionate about a hobby or a product or a sports team or a music group? The list could go on. You know, the type of person that would thrive on that object uh, of their passion. I was once made aware of an individual in our former hometown who was passionate about Notre Dame fighting Irish football. Now, granted, I am a fan of the Notre Dame fighting Irish. My son and I are our fans, but our fanship doesn't hold a candle to this person. This person made it his goal to never miss a Notre Dame fighting Irish football game. Never miss a game. Now, that doesn't mean never miss it on TV. To never miss attending a game. Now, the 50 miles or so up to South Bend, Indiana for home games, not such a big deal. But he committed to never missing attending a Notre Dame fighting Irish football game. So when they play USC out in California or Stanford, he was there. When they played Miami down in Florida, he was there. When they played Michigan up in Ann Arbor, he was there. He worked his schedule every year to make sure he could attend all home and all away games. He is what I would call at the extreme end of this kind of passionate pursuit of personal interest. We use words for a person like that, like intense or obsessed or other words that we might use. But on the other hand, sometimes we admire someone who has a passion that doesn't move them in kind of self-indulgent ways, but moves them to do something in good ways. Take, for instance, Jess Wade. I would dare say you may have never heard of Jess Wade. Jess Wade is a British physicist who discovered in doing some personal research that there was a gross lack of information on Wikipedia about women who had made significant contributions to science. So she decided she would do something about that. To date, she has researched and entered bios on Wikipedia for 1,750 women who have not been recognized in the broader community for their contributions to science. She works at her job all day as a physicist, comes home at night, eats a quick, quick supper, and then begins to research. Passion. I think sometimes we forget the lengths that some early missionaries went to to serve God with passion? Amy Carmichael, while ministering in India in the late 1800s, became aware of the fact that many Indian children were dedicated to gods by their parents or guardians, and they became temple children and lived in moral and spiritual danger. It became her mission to rescue and raise these children. She served in India for 55 years without taking a furlough or a home assignment. 
She was Irish of descent. So she would often use coffee to color her skin so that she could travel to a village somewhat undetected just to rescue one child. Passion. Part of the definition of the word passion means extreme compelling emotion, intense emotional drive or excitement and enthusiasm. Now, with all that in mind, I want you to think about something. What is God passionate about? The God who created our emotions, the God who created drive, the God who created our desire even to be passionate to pursue things, the God who created us in his image in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. What is God passionate about? I want to give you a brief answer, and then I'm going to show you in our passage today, in Zechariah 1 and 2, how I came up with that answer. I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to Zechariah. Zechariah is the second to last book in your Old Testament, and it's the second to last minor prophet. It actually has 12 chapters. It is a book that is loaded with information, and, and it, as I looked at our, our time schedule and everything, I said, you know what, I think we're going to get more out of Zechariah if we do a four-part kind of flyover series. So that's what we're going to do, and we're going to begin today in chapters one and two. What is God passionate about? I would submit to you, God is passionate about relationship with us. Let that soak in a minute. The creator of the universe has a deep desire to be in relationship with us. He created us. He loves us. He sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. He sustains us. He cares for us. You and I collectively and individually are God's passion. The Bible is all about God working in time and space and history to reach out to humanity and open the door for relationship with us. The messages and the visions of Zechariah were delivered at about the same time that Haggai, you know, our prophet from last week, that he ministered. Now, as we saw last week, the focus of Haggai was build the temple. This is what God has sent you here to do. And, and it was actually the literal building of the temple. The, the focus that we're going to find in Zechariah is come into relationship with God. Now, in that period, in that time period, relationship with God was bound up in temple worship. You, they, they believe that God indwelt the temple, and we have that back in uh, 1 Kings when Solomon had finished the temple, and when he had finished everything, the glory of God entered into it, and the, glory, and the clouds settled over it, and, and they couldn't even see into it. And, and so there's that reality that that's where God is. Now, we have a different reality today because we have Christ, and we're, we're on this side of the cross, and, and we know that when we 
come into a faith relationship with Jesus Christ, believing that he died on the cross for our sins, then Paul says it in 1 Corinthians, we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, indwells us. That was not the case in those years prior to Christ. And so the temple worship was also all about relationship with God. God desires spiritual relationship with each person. And so this morning, I hope that as we look at these two chapters briefly, you will be encouraged by the God who is passionate about a relationship with you. Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, tell us this. A passionate God desires unhindered relationship. A passionate God desires unhindered relationship. Look at what he says. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Barakai, the son of Iddo. The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your ancestors, whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways, from your evil practices, but they will not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your ancestors now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? Then they repented. And said, the Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. God is saying, look back through history. Look back and realize that your ancestors sinned. That they stepped outside of my ways. And when we sin, I would say this. While all sin oftentimes is behavioral in nature... All sin also affects relationships negatively. Sin affects relationships negatively. It affects human relationships negatively. If I lie to you, I have had an action, a behavior that has offended you, and I have hurt our relationship. If I steal from you, that's an action, but that action hurts our relationship. Sin is behavioral in nature, but relational in its effect. And God is saying, when you sin, you break relationship with me. And when your ancestors sinned, they broke relationship with me. Sin hinders our human relationships, but more importantly, it hinders our relationship with God. It violates the boundaries God has set up. Remember this. And God talks about his wrath in this passage and all. And and he says, and and what God is angry about, he's angry about the behavior that separates those he's passionate about, his creation, from him. For this people, throughout their history, he called them repeatedly to turn to him. He called them repeatedly to turn from their wicked ways. He called them repeatedly to stay away from the Baal worship and and the Ashtoreth worship. He called them repeatedly to do that. And and he, he used all kinds of measures to try to correct them. There were droughts and famines and and there were eventually other parties that came in and and took them away and they they just 
waited until the very end, and then God had to take him away and, as it were, give them a 70-year time out in captivity. You see, repeatedly in this series, we've made one point. God does not play games. God is not a divine heavenly parent that says, obey me, one, two, three. No, God says, obey me, and he expects now. God does not play games. Sin living out, is living outside of the clear boundaries God has set. And God is a holy God, so he cannot ignore sin. It's outside of his character. But as we look at the biblical record, when God does deal with sin and when people respond and they turn from their sin, then God shows his grace to those who turn back from their sin. And this is the point of verse 2, 3 here. Return to me, says the Almighty, and I will return to you. Why? Because God is passionate about an unhindered relationship with his people. God's point is, I don't want my relationship with you to be hindered by anything. Turn to me. And his promise is that when we admit, like these people did in verse 7, when we admit that we are living in a way that is outside the boundaries that he has set, and we turn from that lifestyle and turn to him, he will return to us. I even think, coming off of what we saw in Zephaniah, that he rejoices over us with singing thinking about the story of the prodigal son in the book of Luke, I think he comes running to us. It breaks God's heart when we live a life that he calls sin. It fills his heart when we turn from our sin and we turn to him. The next section, Zechariah makes this point. A passionate God is comforting and protecting. Now, in verse here, in chapter 1, verse 7, we begin a series of eight visions in the book. Now, since we're doing a bird's eye view of Zechariah, we're not going to look at every vision. And I need to say a word about visions in the Bible. You see, I don't take the approach that every vision in Scripture is filled with Uh, deep, hidden meanings that correspond to details that we see right now and and that there's all these little secrets hidden in the scriptures. I think the visions have a message for us, and I think sometimes that message is clear. I think other times that message might be cryptic because that vision was given well over 2,000 years ago. And so there may be things in that vision we don't understand. There may be word pictures in that vision that we don't get. Sometimes images have a a meaning, and the Bible will be clear to point that out. Sometimes descriptions, though descriptions are a person just trying to come up with the words to, to, to describe what they are seeing. Uh, a case in point of that someday is to go read Ezekiel chapter 1 and, and what is he seeing? What is going on? What is that entity he's seeing? And, and he was, you just sometimes you don't have the words to describe what you're seeing. Sometimes 
the image was something that the original hearers or readers understood, but over the years that has changed. The impact of that image has not carried down, and, and so we don't fully know exactly what they were talking about. I mean, think about something for a minute. If I say the golden arches, I would imagine just about everybody knows I'm thinking about McDonald's. But what, what if we fast forward a thousand years? And somebody reads, I long for the golden arches and the goodness within. Ah, what are the golden arches? I wonder if he's thinking about a door. I wonder if he's thinking about a special place, a special doorway that he could go through. Maybe that's heaven. Maybe that's, that. Maybe that's his description of, of heaven going through the golden arches. Do you see how it could change? I know, kind of silly. But we need to be careful not to just say, well, this means this and this means that, because we can mislead people easily. So here in chapter 1, beginning of verse 7, uh, again, it's the 24th day of the 11th month of Shabbat, the second year of Darius. So, it, and you say, why is all that there? It gives us a time stamp. Okay, so we know this was a real event at a real time. And he sees this vision. And it's a man mounted on a red horse. And behind him were red and brown and white horses. So, so here's this man mounted on a horse. Now, now Zechariah has a, a bonus here that he has an angel that he can ask different things. And so he says, what are these? And the angel said, I'll show you what they are. And, and basically what they are, what he's seeing is uh, what we would say is the cavalry of God. He said they are ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth. God's cavalry has gone throughout the earth to examine the earth, to see how things are going. Uh, he's, he's, his cavalry is going out to, to watch. Uh, they're, they're bringing back a report of what they've seen. And what they've seen is that we've found the whole world at rest and, and in peace. And the angel said, uh, and, and yet, the angel has a question and he asks God the question, verse 12, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and the towns of Judah, which you have been angry with these 70 years? So God, the, my, the people are saying there's rest, there's peace in the world, but somehow you're withholding from Jerusalem. How long? When are you going to restore them? So the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. And the angel who was speaking to me said, proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, and I am very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry, but they went too far with the punishment. So God's, the angel says, God, you're, you're the God of comfort. You're the God of comfort and protecting. How long? And God speaks words of comfort. And he says, I am very, very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. The New Living Translation says, has that phrase this way. My love for Jerusalem and Zion is passionate and strong. And that captures the heart. That captures the nuance of the verb. You and I both know that when we go through a difficult time, when we go through a confusing time, when we go through a time in which we're trying to figure out what the next step is, it is comforting, it is vital to know that in the middle of our struggle, there is someone who says, I'm for you, I'm with you. 
I will walk with you in this. God says, I'm that person. God says, I'm for my people. God says, you know, I, God knows. God knows that there are things in your life and in mine, just as there were in Zacharias and the people back then, there are things that, that we don't fully understand. And I think we ought to camp on one truth. God's love for us is passionate and strong. And when the time is right, he steps in. Verse 17, he says, I will comfort Zion again. God restored his people to the land. Now, it's interesting, and and we're going to tie this in. God says, I was angry with those nations that felt secure. I was only a little angry with them. I'm in verse 15, but they went too far with the punishment. What God is saying is, I'm going to vindicate my nation. I was only a little angry with them, but they added to the calamity. And we'll see here uh, a little while later in verse 18 and following, he talks about some horns. And there are uh, the horns, that these are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Now, in that day, the horn was a symbol of power. And so he's talking about the powers. And I would say most likely two of the horns are Assyria and two of them are Babylon. And so these horns are going to be dealt with. Because God says they went too far. They took their power and they subdued the nations of Israel like God wanted them to do, but then they went a little further. You say, wait, 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 time out. Didn't we learn that the nations were used by God to correct his people and take them into captivity to remove them from the land because of sin? Yes, God said. I mean, he told Isaiah, I'm rising up Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. The Babylonians are my servants. But the nations of Assyria and Babylon took the freedom that God had given them and they went too far. A Syrian and a Bab and Babylon tried to annihilate God's people. Let me give you what God means, I believe. Let's think of a little scenario here. Uh, a parent comes home, a dad comes home, and he pulls in the driveway. It's dark. He pulls in the driveway, and he didn't see his daughter's bicycle that was laying in the middle of the driveway. And as a result, pulling into it and bumping over it, he's actually punctured a tire on his car. Now, this daughter has been told repeatedly to put her bike away when she's done riding it. She has been grounded from her bicycle for a period of time. She has lost other privileges, and it just doesn't seem to have made a difference. And so now dad is standing there looking at a bike that is crushed and a tire that is flat, and his son comes out and he goes, would you tell your sister I need to speak with her? So the older brother goes in to his sister. And in a minute, dad hears the younger sister wailing in pain. And he looks up just to see the older brother with his sister in a headlock, dragging her out to see dad. Now he took dad's instructions and he went too far. He took dad's instructions and he took it to another degree. Now, both children are going to be punished on a grander scale. It's kind of what happened to Israel. 
God says, in essence, to Assyria, two of the horns, go and punish the northern kingdom. And Syria did more than that. They not only punished, they almost wiped them out. They sent them everywhere. Those 10 tribes are what they call the lost tribes. Assyria, by the way, no longer exists and will never exist again. God said to Babylon, I want you to punish Judah. And they did more than that. They hauled off Judah. They destroyed the temple. They destroyed the city. They took all the items of worship. Babylon no longer exists. So what does, have us to, what does this do for us today? How do we understand a passionate God being comforting and, and uh, protecting? Well, first of all, a passionate God loves us dearly. He is also a God who is keenly aware of all that we suffer. When you, as a follower of Christ, suffer unjustly at the hands of another, no matter who that may be, God sees, God knows, and God will deal with it in his time. The end of Romans chapter 12, Paul writes, quoting the Lord, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is not yours, it's not mine. Vengeance is God. He sees, he knows, he understands, he will take care of it in his time. Secondly, though, we see a passionate God who loves us dearly will sometimes allow us to be in a position of helplessness. You see, when we're in a position where we don't know the answer, where we don't have the power, we don't know what's next, where we're confused, it should drive us into deeper dependence upon God, to learn to depend on Him, to receive His grace, to learn what it means to wait on Him, and to understand the difference between decisions I've made and consequences I face as opposed to situations that happen that I didn't create, but I'm now facing. God wants us to realize that relationship with him is a reception of his grace in our lives. You see, some of us want to work hard. We have a tendency to think, if I just do this, then God will be pleased with me. If I just do that, God will be pleased with me. And we, may, we try to make things happen so that God will notice. God already notices. And I dare say that folks who find themselves angry at God, angry at the church, sometimes their, their anger is legitimate. The church is made up of fallen and failed human beings we do hurt one another, but sometimes we get angry with God because we think he owes us. I did this. I gave that. I sacrificed here. God, you owe me. And what God wants us to understand is that we don't have to earn our relationship with him. He has already provided his love to us. And when we live within the relational boundaries he sets, we find peace and security at the core of our being. Every now and then I get nostalgic. And I reflect back on when each of our children were born. And I remember holding each one in the delivery room when they were just a few minutes old that child had done nothing to earn 
my love. They simply were. They were. They were, they were ours. And we loved them because of who they were, not because of what they did. Actually, for those first few years, they didn't do much, you know what I'm saying? Uh, and, and yet you love them. And you hold them and you see them grow and develop. And, and, and you know, allow that to go on a grander scale to see God. God loves you because he created you. You don't have to earn his love. You simply have to receive his love through Christ. Well, we finish up today in chapter 2. And, and in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, the prophet makes this point. A passionate God evokes confidence, joy, and awe. This is the third vision. We saw the first vision was the myrtle trees. The second vision was the horns. And now we have this vision. And there's a man and he's going out to measure the city of Jerusalem. And it's interesting. He's going out to measure Jerusalem to find out how wide and how long it is. Verse 2 of chapter 2. And all of a sudden... An angel comes to him to meet him and he says, run and tell that young man Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals. And I myself, he's speaking for God, I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. Interestingly enough, the angel says, this city's not going to be a city with walls. Now, I know, if you know a little bit of your Bible, you know that there's a book in the Bible called Nehemiah. And Nehemiah exists right around the time of these guys. And Nehemiah went to the king and he got permission to come to Jerusalem and build the wall. So what's going on here? What's happening here? I think what God is saying is, I want your confidence to be in me. A passionate God evokes confidence. I want you to have confidence in me. That doesn't mean a wall is unimportant, but don't put your confidence in the wall. Put your confidence in me. I'm the one who can protect you. I'm the one who can be there for you all the time. When the guard falls asleep on the wall, which is not a good idea, I'm still there. I'm the God that neither sleeps nor slumbers. I'm always there. Put your confidence in me. And this is reflected in the message that follows the vision. I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory within. Wow, what a, what a great word picture. This wall, a wall of flame, nobody can penetrate it. And yet inside there's the glory of God, the, the majesty of God, the holiness of God, the goodness of God. Zechariah continues with a message from the vision. It's a call for the people to, to run from that which has held them captive. He says in verse 7, Come, Zion, escape, you who live in daughter Babylon. For this is what the Lord Almighty says. After the glorious one has sent me against the nations that have plundered you, for whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye, I will surely raise my hand against them so that their slaves will plunder them then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. Zacharias says, look at the tenderness. God sees you, Israel. And I would say God sees you, Christian. God sees us, Pleasant Hill Community Church, as the apple of his eye, as the one that he loves dearly. And he promises 
that he will deal with those who've treated his people unjustly. But then it, that moves into uh, a praise song. Verse 10, shout and be glad, daughter Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people I will live among you, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. God says, I want you to know that I desire nothing than for you and I to be in presence with one another. You know, this, this word that, that, that for all of us, there are two responses that should come from this. One, we need to rejoice. We need to rejoice that we are never alone. Even when you feel lonely, even when you feel like there's nobody else around, if you have faith in Christ, if you've put your faith in him, if you believed he died on the cross for your sins, then the Holy Spirit indwells you. So God is always with you. I know that requires a faith step, but it's what the Bible says, and his presence is always there. And at the same time, because we are constantly in his presence, it should cause us to step back in awe. The holy God pays attention to you and me. The holy God pays attention to our church. The holy God pays attention to his people who are suffering. We've been watching, and, and, and I'm sure you have too, not only what's going on in Ukraine, but the protest in Iran and, and the protest of women standing up and saying, you can't tell us what to wear anymore. And, 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 and I, I pray for them, but you know what I pray for too? I know that there are Christ followers meeting secretly in house churches and places like that. And I pray for them because the Holy God is with them. And they're trying to navigate. How do we navigate this? We want to follow God. We're citizens of this country. We have this whole thing to navigate. We want to be safe, but at the same time, we want to be bold. And God says, I know. Whenever you see a hot spot in the world, know that there are Christ followers somewhere there that are having to respond, having to live through that. From a New Testament perspective, from what I say, this side of the cross, these promises were fulfilled, but they're they're still to come. Many nations aren't yet joining with the Lord. It's a, a, a future reality. But yet, Zechariah is quoted almost more than any other minor prophet in the New Testament when it comes to references of the Messiah. Matthew Quotes from Zechariah three times, Mark once, John twice, Revelation once. And these are quotes that when we get to them, and we will, you'll go, oh, I've heard that one. Zechariah points us to the Messiah. And we can look back and see that God did. God incarnate, Jesus came dwelt among us. Because Jesus was limited to a physical body, his presence was limited. 
So he told his disciples, I'm going to heaven and I'm going to send another. We talked about this a couple Wednesday nights ago in our Bible study. The, the word encourager is, is the same word that we get our word comforter or paraclete is the specific word. I'm sending you a comforter. I'm sending you a counselor, the Holy Spirit, who uniquely and wonderful ways will dwell with each person who believes in Jesus. His presence is always with you. And that's a reason for great praise. God is with us. God is passionate about relationship with us. That relationship is one that is to be unhindered by sin, so we learn to repent and return to God. That relationship is one that should bring us comfort and the assurance of protection so that we trust God. That relationship was one that gives us hope and confidence and joy and awe so that we worship and give ourselves and worship to God in all that we do. So if you don't remember anything else today, remember this. God is passionate about his relationship with you. God invites you into relationship with him. God invites you who claim to know him to grow and develop in that relationship. And oddly enough, because he's a loving God, he continues to leave the choice up to us. What will you choose? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for technology that enables me to present your word uh, early on. And I pray, Lord, that you will use your word now. Open our hearts. Show us where you want us to change to come into line with you. Remind us of your constant abiding presence. In Jesus' name, amen.